So, hello, Wes, and uh, welcome to the Sex and the Sex Ed Before Bed podcast. Thanks. It's ready. Yeah, thank you for being on the show, and uh, yeah, you're you're hailing from London today, so it's uh, it's really cool to to meet you. Mm-hmm. Me too. Yeah. So, um, I guess maybe we can just like start by if you want to maybe tell your story if that's if that's how you want to do it okay um yeah i so i can sort of tell you who i am now and work backwards okay so i'm 31 um i probably describe myself as a trans guy um sometimes i'll describe myself as a man of trans experience um and I started my transition from female to male about uh, seven years ago medically and socially. I kind of started transitioning about a year before that. Um, I've come out as a lot of different things. Um, when I was in my first year of university, which is what brought me to London, um, I kind of... Um, I wouldn't say came to terms with, but kind of found language for the fact that I was attracted to women. And at the time, I was still living as being perceived as a woman. Um, So a lot of people, when I, you know, was gradually just sort of saying, oh, I I had a date tonight or whatever, and would tell people that that was with a woman, people would sort of draw the conclusion, oh, so you're a lesbian. You you identify as a lesbian. And I just Mm -hmm. kind of accepted that a bit. I was like, okay, yeah, that, I mean, it's not wrong, but it's not right. And but I kind of clung to that identity for a while because I found in that identity, there was a lot more room to present as butch or masculine than there was outside of that. Mm. Um, but I knew that that label didn't really fit and like a little bit of it was about attraction, but there was still this larger gender identity thing that I hadn't really figured out yet. I just, I grew up from the time I was probably, I'm realizing this isn't going to be very linear. This is so <laughs> but, um, you know, I think okay. I knew from a young age that I didn't feel like other kids my age. Um, but when kids are young, I think we give them a lot more room than we do when they're older to just, like, it's perfectly acceptable for a little girl to go swimming in just a little pair of underwear or something up until a certain age. And yeah. I don't know what that age is, but I think we can all attach ourselves to a memory where we're like, oh yeah, I kind of remember that point where you had to, you know, you'd get told to put on a shirt or you've got to wear a one piece like your older sister or whatever. And so, um, around that age is kind of when I was like, okay, yeah, something feels different, something feels off. Um, And then, you know, but it wasn't until years and years and years and years later that I realized that there was a word or many words for that experience and that there was an alternative to feeling off (laughs) or uncomfortable. (laughs) And so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I moved off to university when I was 17 or 18 and, you know, met some of the first gay people or queer people that I had ever met. And um, as much as I grew up in an environment where, um, you know, my parents had had some gay friends and, you know, we had a gay neighbor and this and that, like, I mean, even though it's a relatively, um, liberal household it was just I hadn't been exposed to much of that 
And so in my first year of university, kind of met some other queer folks, and that gave me a bit of language to sort of say, I don't necessarily know what I am or I'm not, but I know that I'm attracted to women, and I'm going to see what that's about. Um, and um, But the interesting thing was I was really clinging to that sort of lesbian identity while also sleeping with and dating men, <laughs> and then receiving a lot of actual sort of shame and stigma from people in the lesbian community saying, you know, like... That, that was a bad thing and that I couldn't claim that label if I was going to be sleeping with men. And so it was a really tricky sort of thing where I actually, I kind of came out of one closet and then went into another mm. where it was like, all right, I'm going to be, you know, if, if lesbian is the identity available to me, I'm going to be the best one and I'll just hide all of this other stuff. Mm. Um, like, you mean like a, like a, like presenting as a pure lesbian or something? Yeah, whatever that means. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, secretly hooking up with guys. Hmm. Um, and, <clears throat> yeah, and struggling with that. And then it wasn't until, so that was, yeah, I came out the first time I think around 17, 18, right? In freshly 18. And, and I don't think I realized that, like, trans was an option, that that was a thing I could be until I was probably about 23. Hmm. Um thanks to YouTube, stumbling across videos of people who I was like, oh my God, this, this is my experience. There's some people here who are sharing some feelings that I have felt. <clears throat> and I didn't really know that that was my experience right away, but I knew it was something that I should hide. Mm -hmm. um, and so these were videos that I was sometimes watching like hours of a day, like when nobody was home with the door closed and just sort of this like intrigue and fear a little bit so wait, when um, when you were studying at university were you still were you living at home or were you living like on campus uh, i was like, living in a residence yeah okay. so i had a roommate um her and i could not have been more opposite um but we formed a really interesting friendship and then towards the end of the year Oh my God, we couldn't stand each other. And then um, after a bit of a cooling off period, like we've been friends and we still check in and it's like 12, 13 years later. No. Um, so that was interesting. But yeah, and I had a few really great friends and residents that were all just super open-minded people. Um, and all of this was kind of, this coming up period was kind of happening at a time where um, I was dealing with a lot of mental health challenges. Um, I had in the last couple of years of high school, like a lot of self-injury, suicidal ideation, depression, anxiety. Things weren't great at home with my parents, um, brother with special needs. Like there was just a lot happening. And I think I thought, oh, I'm going to go off to university and have this fresh start and everything's going to be different and whatever. But then you add the stresses of school and you don't remove some of those traumatic bits. And, mm. um, you know, so people kind of knew me as some of you, I think, had some some pretty high highs and some pretty low lows. And, you know, there was a few times I was in a crisis counseling and that sort of thing. Yeah. And all of it kind of culminated a little bit around figuring out this piece of my identity that, oh, okay, I, you know, I, I think I like people of more than one gender and whatever else. So it was actually just, I, there's one friend, Kim, who lives in Toronto and I don't get to see her nearly as much anymore, but she was just the friend that like nothing phased her. <laughs> I, I would just, you know, trot down to her room, and she'll have to listen to this at some point, and I'm sure she'll laugh. Like, you know, I'd trot down to her room and, you know, just 
sort of like, oh, by the way, I hooked up with this person last night, <laughs> or, you know, I got four body piercings and, you know, rode home on top of a cop car, and like nothing, <laughs> none of those things actually happened. I hooked up with a lot of strange people, yeah. but like she would just go, oh, okay, and, you know, do you need a band-aid, or like, <laughs> tell me all about it. Um, so she was just always really neat, she's the person that I would sort of always debrief all of my weird escapades with mm. um yeah so it was it was interesting having this pivotal moment in my life surrounded by like all of these people also having weird moments in their life and then you're shoved in a building together like good luck happy first year of university yeah my gosh my gosh so when you when you talked about how you were watching these you know videos on youtube and they're just absorbing as much as you could was that like in residence where you felt like you had to keep your door closed while that was happening no so the stuff in my first year of university was actually way before i even kind of realized the trans thing yeah. at all like i mean it, this was like i didn't even really learn that trans was a my only understanding of trans people prior to being about 23 was trans women being the punchlines of jokes in movies mm. and being portrayed as sex workers. Right. And I think for many of us, that's some of the first images we have. Or, you know, like I think back to um, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Mm-hmm. The punchline, the whole point of that movie is finding out that that female detective is a trans woman and they expose her genitals at the end of the movie. And, like, that was my understanding. And then yeah. a few years later, I saw the movie Boys Don't Cry and realized that there was another end of sort of the trans spectrum, if you will, and was like, well, that doesn't look like a nice time. Yeah. Uh, you know, in this movie where this trans man is, is assaulted and murdered and all of these sorts of things. So, like, if those are your options, why would you hurry to find more information? Yeah. Right? If those are the only two sort of things that you found. So, but in my first year of university, when I kind of realized I was somewhere on the queer spectrum, you know, I was, I found like a couple of message boards and a couple of dating sites. Like this is back when message boards were a thing, you know, 10, 12, 13 years ago. Yeah. Well, maybe, I don't know for me, like it was the, the cyber chat rooms, not that like, not, not yeah, like MSN and ICQ and all of, yeah. all of that stuff. This was been after ICQ, but yeah, but it was, um, no, it's interesting. I don't think I really ever struggled around, I don't, I don't remember there being some giant internal struggle around coming out at the time as, as a woman who was attracted to other women. I never said, and I'm not attracted to men or whatever. I had always been very uncomfortable around men, even the ones that I chose to date and eventually have sex with. It was always this, um, I think it was muddied by the gender stuff I hadn't figured out yet. And that I hadn't had like a whole lot of awesome models mm. and I was bullied a ton in school by boys and that sort of thing so it was always this really like I I like men but I really hate that I like men and I don't feel safe about liking men um, so when I came out of saying I like women it wasn't really this like oh my god what am I going to tell people are they going to stop loving me what's going to happen there was a bit of apprehension but I kind of knew that everyone in my life probably wouldn't be surprised because um, I'd always been kind of 
you know, butch and tomboyish and um, didn't have a whole lot of crushes in like elementary and high school and stuff like that. So um, that wasn't as much of a sort of like tortured coming out as the trans bit was. Um, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It sounds pretty complicated. It sounds like (laughs) seriously, like there was a lot of uh, identity stuff happening. Um, So, yeah, because because what I hear you saying is that you you felt an attraction to women, but, you know, you were also interested in seeing seeing men at the same time. And uh, well, when you when you so when you were identifying like as did you identify as a lesbian for a time? Yeah, there was a time where I, you know, like I kind of fell in with a bit of a crowd of friends that I made and my first partner um, and that sort of thing. And so it was like, it was kind of like I got brought into this cool club if I claimed this title. And I was like, yeah, I got some stuff in common with a lot of you. Like, we like edgy haircuts and boys' clothes and women and dancing at really awful bars on Saturday nights. And it was just this sort of, like... Band of misfits that you know felt great when um, you know at a time when I was just trying to figure stuff out and um, yeah so I, I totally took on the lesbian identity for a while and um, because I think I also really wanted it to be enough I wanted I wanted it to be as simple as like oh here it is here's the word and I'll just I'll do that I'll be that and then I don't necessarily have to. It was like, I think it was a good distraction for a while too. Um, thinking like, all right, well, you know, if if you identify as a lesbian, you've got some extra permission to just be super butch and maybe you can just be happy with that Mm. and not take it any further. Right. Because, um, what I hear you saying is that, well, I don't know if you want to identify when you started feeling this disconnect in terms of your identity, but maybe, did you kind of want that to be the thing that would quell that disconnect or that, that internal struggle? Totally. I think, uh, I certainly do not speak for all trans people. Um, I think we all go, th- that being said, I will speak for all trans people <laughs> at this moment. I think we, I mean, I think many of us go through a period of bargaining where it's sort of, you, you try to do as little as possible but you try to yield as much happiness from that tiny bit as possible. You know, so in the beginning, um, you know, before I even recognized it was a bit of gender thing, I was always uncomfortable being a person who had breasts. Um, I hit puberty quite late. And so, you know, when you're younger and everyone else around you and the bodies are changing, you're like, okay, well, why not me? And then when it did happen, it was like, okay, now this thing that I kind of knew was going to happen and I wanted is here, but I feel weird and I feel more awkward in my body than I did before. Um, and so for many years, it was just sort of this, you know, I just don't want to have breasts. And even before I learned what being trans was or sort of that that was an identity that fit for me. I was kind of thinking out ways to just keep living as what the world saw as a woman or whatever, um, but just not having breasts anymore. Mm. Um, Mm. Which is kind of when I discovered um, chest binding and got a chest binder and it was super exciting at first because it was like, I can put on this garment and then wear a t-shirt and look in the mirror and see my body the way that I want to see it. Um, Mm. And so that was initially like this wonderful sense of relief 
for about a month. (laughs) You know, because I kept saying, I was like, no, like, I'll just, I'll just, I'm not going to transition. I'm not going to do anything. Like, I'm just going to get this boob issue out of the way. Mm. Um, And so that lasted for about a month. And then I distinctly remember um, going out to eat. It was a Jack Astor's with my partner, um, who's still my partner. Um, we got together before I started medically transitioning. She knew it was inevitable. And so it's funny, a lot of people had suggested like that I blindsided her and I said, no, she she knew this long before even my previous partner knew. We were friends first mm. and you know we chatted about this and, and even the person I was with at the time didn't know. Um, so, you know, uh, my partner and I go out to eat it Jack Astor's, and I've been binding my chest and gradually dressing more masculine. And oh, of something. oh, I lost you for a moment there. Sorry. So, okay, right. Jack Astor's, okay. you were binding your yeah. chest, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, it kind of felt like the start of something. It wasn't just, you know, oh, I'm going to grow my hair up for a bit and see if that fits, and then cut it all off. So, we're at dinner, and the server comes over, and I'm presenting. You know, like I looked in the mirror before I left the house and I saw a guy, you know, a flat chested, you know, masculinely dressed guy. And I was feeling good about myself. And I thought, you know, like we're going to go out in public and people are going to read us as boyfriend and girlfriend and whatever. And so you sit down in the restaurant and the server comes over, very well intentioned, smiling to both of us and goes, and what can I get you ladies? Mm. And... I just, like, I froze up, and I panicked, and my partner looked at me just, like, you know, looking like, like, she knew exactly how it kind of broke me in that moment, and I just remember, like, placing my order really quickly, kind of mumbling through it, and then going to the bathroom and crying in a bathroom stall in the men's room, which at the time, I remember wondering, should I use the men's room? Um, and that having to make that decision because this was super early for me and then being super thankful that no one else is in there so that I wouldn't have to worry about any weird encounters in the men's room. And so it was at that moment that I realized I'm not going to be okay with just binding my chest. It was about the fact that as soon as I spoke, my, my voice would give me away because it was very high and feminine and that, um, you know, I'd have to wear a hat pulled really down low over my face to hide my soft facial features and make me look more masculine. And I would be grabbing onto like all of these tropes and these stereotypes trying to just desperately get read as male. Um, and it was kind of that moment at which I was like, no, like I, I, I need to do something more. And the real turning point, because I kept bargaining, being like, I'm not going to fully transition because of this, that, or the other. And it was another, it was after that restaurant experience, um, a couple weeks later, we were supposed to go grocery shopping on a Saturday. And I'm getting ready to go out, and I've been getting ready for an hour and a half. I've changed into 10 different shirts. I'm trying to, like, curate my my outfit to, like, (laughs) you know, put myself out into the world. Yeah. And I went and a full panic attack and um, okay. my partner like, sat me down on the couch and said I will sit with you through as many of these as you need to have but I'm worried you're going to be dead in six months if you don't do what you know you need to do and she was absolutely right um, you know and I don't want to perpetuate the notion that every trans person is suicidal and torn apart and whatever because that's what pretty much always, you know, gets put out there. But the fact is, that's a very real truth for many of us. And for those, it isn't awesome. It's just a different experience. Um, 
there are many narratives, but it was that point at which I was like, yeah, I actually, and I had been telling myself in my mind, um, I'm not willing to turn 25 like this. And I was 23 at the time. Mm. Um, and about six months later is when I started hormone therapy. Three months after that, I had chest surgery. A year after that, I then proceeded to have some other surgery. Um, <clears throat> but I knew right off the bat that like chest surgery was the number one and um, a very close second were hormones. And I didn't really know after that. I, mean, I don't think medical interventions are, I, I never really have a desire in talking about all of that because I think it's, fetishizing and gross and it's usually right what people go to like oh have you had the surgery or what's in your pants or whatever um but i'm quite public about this you know like I, I never mind talking about my chest surgery because for me it was a really positive experience and i think it's also important that like um you know, like I had people tell me that I couldn't possibly be a feminist while butchering my perfect woman's body. And I talk about chest surgery a lot to demystify that because I think that's complete BS. Like, you know, how can you be a feminist by telling me that these lumps of fat and skin on my chest are my worth? Right. Um, and that they make up my politics and all that. So, mm. <clears throat> um, yeah. So I, I talk about that sort of surgery in that sense because it ties in deeply with my politics. The other stuff, though, um, when I get questions around like surgeries, I typically give really annoying, ambiguous answers because yeah. I just think that that's what those questions deserve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I went to go see the um, documentary about Gigi. I don't know if you've heard of it. Her name is Gigi Gorgeous. Oh, I have heard of her. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, um, it was about her kind of journey. And of course, they they showed her getting implants and her father taking her to get implants um, in a different city. And that's and just the recovery time um, for it. So, yeah. So that was really interesting. Um uh, what was it, what was it, would you care to speak about what it was like starting to take some of the hormone therapy? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, like I don't even know that it's possible to kind of describe the experience because <laughs> it's weird. So like someone in my case, um, transitioning from female to male on testosterone and, and then like estrogen suppression, you basically experience male puberty and uh, female menopause at the exact same time. Um, so your first six months are a pretty wild ride and I find that I'm really sensitive to fluctuations and hormones and stuff whereas I've got friends who um, you know have experienced few less noticeable effects but like you know like hot flashes are no joke I will never make fun of people with hot flashes again the way that we all have that aunt or mom or grandma or mm -hmm. whatever that you know is going through menopause they're awful it's like yeah, and for me, they come with, like, this wave of panic of, like, oh, my God, I can't turn the heat off. It's too hot, and you just got to wait for it to pass. Um, and some of it is is kind of this mean joke. So, like, you break, like you experience a lot of acne on testosterone. Um, your skin gets oilier. You get stinkier. You're getting body hair. And your sex drive 
flies through the roof and you feel your most unattractive. Oh. <laughs> so there's this period of time where it's just like, you know, and that's that increase in sex drive can be really challenging for folks who are maybe super dysphoric about their genitalia. And, you know, your sex drive is through the roof, but you're feeling really disconnected from your body. And that can be a really um, awful feeling for people to sit with. Mm. Um, my appetite was just like ridiculous. I think my partner said that um, we spend about an extra 50 bucks a week on groceries now. <laughs> um, I mean, I also power lift and, and, yeah. and active and stuff like that. So mm. that contributes, but like, just like, like hunger on like a deep level. <laughs> um, yeah. Like voice dropping, um, body fat redistribution going from like having a period to not having a period. Right. Um, and thankfully for me, that medication, like everybody's sort of different that way. I know some people who it lasts for several months after they start hormones. For me, I was really thankful it stopped right away because that was like having to deal with that was unbelievably depression inducing and it would make me panic and not want to go out in public because so like if you need to change a tampon in a men's room good luck first of all finding one with a stall that a door actually closes it you know there's nowhere to dispose of anything in there um they're usually disgusting and you know mm. like there's pee all over the seat and <clears throat> all of this stuff so for me that was just like a panic and depression inducing you know, a week or so and so that was gone, which was great. <laughs> um, and the one thing that I think not a lot of people talk about, and I wish that I had known more. Oh, wait, hold on. There was a little. I used to be a. Oh, can you go back like five seconds there? I lost you for a couple seconds. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the things that. I, I wasn't really prepared for was the massive changes in the way that I experience emotions. So I used to be somebody that my default response, like pre-testosterone, pre-transition, my, my default response to most things was to cry. Like if I was really upset, if I was really excited, if I was joyful, if I was angry, you know, you, you cry and it's cathartic. And, um, and, and like I maybe cry like once or twice a year now. Mm. Um, and that's actually been really difficult because it's, you know, you've lost the ability to have that kind of cathartic moment where you let something out and kind of purge it and, and you know, and then you're able to kind of move on. Whereas for me, my feelings kind of sit, you know, for me, lots of my feelings used to sit deep down in my belly. You know, that's where you feel grief and sadness and, and warmth and love and all of that kind of stuff. And now all of my feelings kind of sit like right where my sternum is. Hmm. And to me, that's where anxiety lives, like that heavy, panicky um, sort of weight. And so through a lot of therapy and time and stuff, I have kind of had to relearn how to connect to that stuff. Hmm. Um, and, um, you know, there's still times where like something awful will happen, like, like a family member will pass away and I can't cry. Um, but yet I can cry at things that mean nothing, like Grey's Anatomy or like cat videos where, <laughs> where you know dogs being reunited with mm. their veterans who've come back from overseas and whatever it's weird like i can't actually access that emotion that deep emotion about things that are happening to me but from things outside of me interesting and yeah and the other thing like in the context of my relationship you know when my partner used to get upset about something i would be in it with her and if she was crying you know i would be empathizing with her and that would get me emotional too and whatever and 
starting testosterone being on it for a while, she would be upset about something or, um, you know, having this big emotional response. And I, and I would get into this mindset of like, how do I fix it? How do I turn it off? Um, it's sort of almost a more mechanical response. And I could still be like, I, I'm hurting, but she's hurting, but like, I need to fix it. Mm. And she's commented on that. And that is, um, yeah, like there's there's something there that I would love to see some research or some more information behind because it's I've chatted with other folks and they've shared that experience too and it um, so you know I've had to relearn just a little bit of like how to be attentive and how to just be you know in something with somebody yeah. instead of feeling like my job to repair it right because it doesn't sound like. It still sounds like that empathy is there. It's just the way you react is less emotional and more, as you say, maybe mechanical. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, the emotions are still there and I can still connect with what I'm feeling, but it's just, it's, it's a different response. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. With, when, with the, uh, hormone therapy, I guess I have two, two, two questions. One is, you know, what was in terms of like, the, this was kind of the thing that you, that you were hoping or looking for in terms of alignment. I was, I'm interested in how the whole process felt for you. If you were excited, if you were nervous, if you, you know, and, and also, um, if you were like, who you shared with around you that you were doing this? Oh, okay. Good questions. Um, and it's so interesting because you, you know, now with social media and YouTube and all of that, like I could watch before I made the decision to start a million people's transitions that were documenting these things online. And so you also start measuring your timeline against somebody else's and okay, when, you know, at what month mark did that change happen for you or whatever? And so that can be a really toxic thing for a lot of people because then you start thinking that, well, if your transition unfolded this way, mine should as well. Mm. And, you know, I don't have a full beard and you have a full beard. So what does that mean for me? You know, it's, you sort of trade one set of unrealistic expectations <laughs> in yeah. non-trans or cisgender, um, mm. you know, expectations around men and women and whatever to then this entirely new set of really tricky ones um you know like i mean there was a countdown to what i called my t-day which was when i got my first injection and that was a super exciting day um you know my partner had like a little get together at my house to surprise me when i got back um and you know and in the beginning i documented with photos pretty regularly to kind of see how the changes unfolded and that fell off much earlier than i like i thought i was going to be super into it for a long time and my interest in that just kind of waned um and then the countdown to like my chest surgery was um was big and was a big deal mm. um and you know i would say like the first two years are pretty ripe with lots of those physical really noticeable changes and then it kind of tapers off about that and from like year three four and five you still get some changes and after about five years the only changes you're seeing are just because you're getting older <laughs> um you know, like you just sort of start to mimic that of the sex that you've transitioned to, yeah. you know, in the same way that like now at 31, like my hair is starting to thin a little bit at the crown mm -hmm. and I have some back hair where I didn't have some back hair before. Yeah. And that's 
something. It's just sometimes that process is sped up by the hormones. Um, so yeah, now it's just kind of, you know, it used to be that it would be month to month, you'd be counting down to the next injection because it would get you that little bit closer. And, Mm -hmm. you know, now I still get an injection once a week. There's nothing exciting about it. It's usually a thing I forget about and have to scramble to do at the end of the day because I feel not so great if I'm a couple of days late. Um, in terms of... Oh, so are you still, are you still getting, uh, injections now? Yeah, and I will for life. Oh, for life, okay. So, And that's not the same for everybody. So um, the reason that I will have to take hormone injections for the rest of my life now is because I don't have any organs anymore, like reproductive organs that produce a hormone, Mm. right? Um, You know, there's no way to, like, put, uh, you know, a couple of testicles into someone who's transitioned from female and have them make testosterone, and then you've just got your own... Yeah. your own production system and I no longer have ovaries so I can't make estrogen so I have to I have to take something for the rest of my life where you worry about bone density and and also you just feel awful with the hormones in your body Um, so that's where I'm at I know plenty of people who have taken hormones for a little while to get a few changes um, because some of the changes are reversible and some are permanent Mm. Um, so um you know, some people do that and then they stop. I know some people who've gone off and on and off and on. Yeah. Back and forth. Yes, I'm going to um, ask, like, a, I have a rude, kind of a rudimentary question, which is, um, okay. is hormone therapy free for everyone? And it was it, uh, was it like, was it a big deal or a challenge to get, uh, like, your physician on board with it? That's a good question. So, no, it is not free for everybody. Um, thankfully, though, so, like, testosterone is actually relatively inexpensive. A 10-milliliter vial of it is about 65 bucks, mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, 5-milliliter vial of it is about 65 bucks, and that would last me 10 minutes mm. at, at my dosage. Um, but different formulations are more expensive. There are ways that if you're on Ontario Works or Disability that um, through Trillium Benefits and things like that, you can get coverage of that but there's a bit of red tape but if you are lower income but above that sort of cutoff line then you're having to find ways to pay for it out of pocket if you don't have private insurance Mm. i've been really lucky that either me or my partner have had really good insurance through the whole process um, which helped even when we were making really not a lot of money um in terms of getting doctors or whoever your primary care provider is on board i also work in trans health i work on a trans health team Mm. um and um so you know and it's london where i live has changed quite a bit over the last several years but that's one of the major barriers where um, a lot of people are afraid to even bring it up to their family doctors they're afraid to come out to their family doctors i worked in sexual health and hiv for five years before this working with populations of men who have sex with men and talking to people about like are you out to your doctor about who your sexual partners are and more often than not it was no or yeah but yeah but we don't talk about it or um which means you're missing a massive segment of someone's health history of who they are psychosocially um all of these things so for a lot of people, it's a massive challenge. I was lucky that I was able to connect with somebody who ended up turning out to be a really great lifelong friend that had started transitioning about a year before me in the same city and was like, here's where I went, go here. Um, 
And now we're slowly seeing, you know, people's family doctors come on board with more people being willing to prescribe. Because the thing is, there's not anything inherently difficult about a primary care provider providing, providing hormone therapy to a trans person. It's very, very simple medicine. Um, I watched an interview recently where it was said that like a second year medical student has enough knowledge at that point to provide hormone replacement therapy to trans folks. Oh. Um, but people are scared about liability mm. and they're scared about giving that diagnosis, um, you know, because there's still some kind of archaic and like bureaucratic weird red tape that providers are like, well, I want you to meet X, Y, and Z requirement in order to get to, you know, to provide you this service. Mm. Um, we're seeing, you know, in Toronto, like in big metropolitan hubs, it can be easier to get connected to affirming care providers um, mm. and um, and that sort of thing. Rainbow Health Ontario provides um, really incredible training for healthcare providers. Well, that's people great. have to want to take it. Right. <laughs> and have the time so, for it too. Um, exactly. I don't know if you've heard about... Um, puberty delaying hormones for gender yeah yeah so what's your what's your take on on that i think they're incredibly valuable and important tools um is the really cool thing about and again i'm not like i'm not a medical practitioner um (laughs) by any means um but you know i work with people who have used these medications or children have used these medications um i think they're great for a couple of reasons one um we can prevent somebody from having their first totally undesired puberty from happening we can prevent that from happening which means less medical intervention down the road to reverse those undesirable effects so um you know and we look at these which is which is good even from a like a public health like from a cost perspective i mean to be a total capitalist about it Right. Yeah. Even if we remove compassion, let's talk about it. Like dollars, and yeah, we can prevent somebody from needing major surgeries, from needing more medications, um, and the potential trauma of having to live years and years and years in a body that doesn't feel right to you, and a world which tells you that you should feel awful about who you are. so, you know, just preventing some of that stuff is incredible. And then if we come at it from the other totally not affirming standpoint, people that go, but oh my God, if we let young people make these decisions, what if they regret it? The cool thing is with a drug like Lupron, someone takes it and suppresses puberty. If they decide they don't want to do that, they come off the medication and the puberty just kicks back in. Mm. So it's not causing, so, you know, even if we're mm. like, all right, Fair enough. We'll, we'll listen to your concerns here and we'll give this person enough time to make an informed decision right. without panicking about, oh my God, what's what's going to happen to my body in the next six or 12 months? When, yeah. You know, um, that sort of thing. And so, what's the I name of the drug? Valuable. Yeah. What's the name of the drug again? Uh, one of them, the most commonly used one is Lupron, L U P R O N, L U P E R O N. Yeah. Google it, but I'm No. And there's a couple others that are used, but that's usually the most common one. And yeah. it's uh, like a monthly injection for a certain amount of time, and then it gets spaced out differently. Yeah. I'm going to ask sort of a more, I guess it's a philosophical question. Because I know you were saying that uh, that certainly the, the breast, your bre- having breasts felt like foreign and maybe unusual and something like you didn't want. Mm-hmm. 
And then you talked about this experience of your voice kind of giving you away when you went to Jack Astor's. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess what I was thinking was, you know, you were talking about how you were trying to like use these tropes to like pass, right? As, yeah. as male. And I was, guess I was just wondering, like, if we got, if we get to a place where, I don't know, if we, if we got to a place where it was okay, you know, that there are people who present as male or who are male and have high voices, you know, do you think that's something you would have been more okay with? Oh, absolutely. Like, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I think I still would have found myself working towards pretty much where I'm at right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but so much of, um, I think, the early days of my transition was informed by, like, um, you know, men don't do this, men do that. And at a time when maybe physically I wasn't being read as male in the world, it's like you, you cling on to these things and, and hope that they're social cues to other people as to who you are and how you like to be addressed. Um, but... I would say that after that initial period, there was a big unlearning I had to go through where I was, was, was okay, so now I'm a little more comfortable in my body, but what kind of man do I want to be um, in the world? And, um, you know, just because it was almost like male privilege kind of arrived overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like it wasn't there one day, and then it was, and it was like, do I want to use my powers for good or evil? <laughs> And, you know, how do I want to take up space in the world and that sort of thing? Um, you know, because I was almost like sometimes very literally like kind of invited into this boys club, which was like, well, let's objectify women and make gross comments about their body in the office. Or, um, you know, let's just like, I don't know, encourage violence and tell horrible jokes and whatever. And it was sort of this... Um, you know, I was like, well, if, if this is what being a man means, how do I feel about this and that sort of thing? And then quickly discovered that there was a way to reconcile all of it. Um, but I mean, I think whether we're talking about trans people or not, right, like we're all, I've always kind of said, no matter whether you're trans or gay or queer or straight or bi or whatever, like we are all just trying to make our bodies a comfortable home to live in. And for some of that, that for some of us, that's harder than others. Um, and I just think that like me making my body a comfortable home to live in has meant some hormones and some surgery and whatever. For some other people, it might mean yoga seven days a week um, or addressing that eating disorder or um, taking a critical eye to like colonialism and racism <laughs> and all of these yeah. things. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I think who knows, like if I had had a clean slate to work from in terms of like, um, representations of different kinds of men, um, maybe, yeah, maybe yeah. my presentation would be a little bit different. Maybe I wouldn't have gotten hung up where I did. Yeah. It's, if I if I hear you correctly, because it sounds like you know you were you were desperate, as you said, to be read that way. So you were looking at the examples that you had as to what what is male, and then it seems like after that, after you had this change, then you wanted to. It got more complex for you, and you wanted to tease it out a lot more. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, it even connected, like, hanging on to some of those stereotypes, even connected to me that feeling massive shame around my attraction to men because it was sort of this like all right i'm already a trans guy and people are going to question my masculinity based on my trans status i can't also be a gay guy or yeah. a bi guy i need to be a straight guy yeah and so you got the press all of that stuff and be, because i even had people ask me like oh so like you've transitioned and you're a straight man now mm. and like how did we suddenly erase all of my sexuality well, I just like added some flannel and a beard. Right. Like, well, yeah. How did that? This is a magical drug we're talking about. Um, <laughs> well, and so, yeah. you know, and a lot of that was my own stuff, like internalized homophobia. And it was like, I don't want to give people another thing to pick out. And so, um, you know, and it was also then there's just so much gross transphobia in like among circles of gay men and. Uh, tons of that is rooted in misogyny and sexism and you know god forbid you be an effeminate man because you don't want to give a bad name to you know like you don't know like you don't want to perpetuate the stereotype or whatever and so you know it was really tricky then for me to settle into new masculinity and feel like i still had to hide the fact that like i've just always been attracted to people like to just all kinds of people and yeah um but yeah, and it's, you know, it's been sort of like the third chapter of all of this is just kind of figuring out how, how to melt the two because I also walk through the world with, you know, a cisgender female partner um, who really only ever dated cisgender non-trans men before me. And so we just like, oh, you two are this heterosexual couple. And we and we got married. So that's like a super... Congratulations. It's a weird thing. Like, I mean, <laughs> and our, we approach our marriage very differently and it meet like you know, half, like 50% of it was a reason to have a cool party and it was about legal protections in case something happened to either one of us. Yeah. Um, family dynamics and stuff being what they may and all of that. So, mm. um, yeah, but it's, it's I, I think it would be difficult to start transitioning not feeling like some part of it was already charted out for you or dictated for you. Yeah. I, I, will, I will admit that... Um, uh, I went to the sexual sexuality conference in Guelph last week. I don't know if you've heard oh, about I it. This year, I went the last two years, but it's a great conference. Yeah, it was. And uh, there was a presentation about um, uh, mononormative mono culture. And anyway, they were giving us these scenarios. And one of the scenarios was about, um, like three different people that were in a relationship, but sort of they had different agreements with each other. So it was kind of a open relationship setup. but they were like one of the character, one of the people in the story was pansexual and the other person was trans. And then there was also different rules about who they could see um, in this different triangle. And then they were like introducing other characters. Anyway, it was kind of like, I think I was a little bit overwhelmed because like I can, there's just like lots of layers to it, you know? And I was like, I could see other people in the room being like, okay, like this, this setup is pretty, we were trying to deconstruct uh, elements of power and control. And I could just see people looking at it like kind of like a math equation because, you know, cause you're like, okay, like, wait, you have to like, remember the definition of pansexual, then poly and then queer 
it, you know, like, so I, I admit that I was just like a little bit like overwhelmed by it or something or confused yeah. by it, you know? Yeah. So yeah. But, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's just different layers of complexity. So yeah. And I think people freak out, right. And they think that they have to understand all of it in one go. And I think there's a little bit of privilege that comes with having access to that world of language and, and, you know, all of that information and stuff, you know, we don't all, yes, anybody can hop on Google and do their homework. And I encourage people to do that just as a member of society. If you don't know what it means to be trans, look up some information on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, or if you don't know what this or that means, but I think it's also fine in general conversation. You and I talking here where you're going for someone to say, you know, can you explain that term to me? You know, I've heard it before, but I'm curious about what it means to you. Or, mm-hmm. you know, like people will ask for a definition of something, um, you know, and I, I could define what it means to be trans to me, and you could ask another person to get a wildly different um, explanation. I mean, I pass as a white, able-bodied, English-speaking, straight man in North America, right? Um, you know, the fact is that... Um, you know, trans women of color are one of the most marginalized and vulnerable communities there are. Um, you know, there was, I saw a stat that said, um, you know, trans women of color uh, uh, constitute less than 1% of the population and one is murdered every 29 hours. Um, and yet, you know, and so like, I'm still riding a wave of privilege here. I've had some awful experiences related to being trans. I've been denied health care. I've been attacked, filed reports of hate crime and, you know, lost a job and, and whatever, but like I'm doing okay. I have a roof over my head. I have a job. I have a community. Um, I have food. I have medicine. Um, and that's not the case. I mean, 50% of the trans population in Ontario lives below the poverty line. Mm. Um, you know, 50% of homeless youth in Toronto are queer trans. Um, so, you know, like, it's, it's funny because people like me get these interviews constantly, get offered this stuff all the time. Um, and the fact is that, like, yeah, maybe there's some juicy tidbits about my story. Maybe someone connects to it. It's beneficial. But, like, um, you know, spend the time interviewing that 14-year-old homeless trans kid that has fled out of fear of violence from her parents or whatever. So it's, you know, it, um, I think it's really just about being willing to sort of participate in ongoing learning. Like I screw up a lot and I, you know, like I'm, I'm basically professionally trans. <laughs> I'm still not always a great ally to other folks in my community, right? Like you screw up and you step in and you have to be willing to have those learning moments that feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, cool stuff can happen after that. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's, I think like that's the, I, I think the, that's part of the reason I, I do this show is because it's my learning process. And you don't I, know what you don't know. Exactly. Exactly. And the more that I learn about sexual health or from talking to people like you and every, everybody else, it's been, um, I've been wrong. My initial perceptions have been wrong so many times, you know, and that's what I like is that I keep getting proven wrong. And then you get to share, share that, like learning with other people. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, (laughs) 
like what, um, I mean, I think that's pretty good advice too, just for people who aren't from the community or who haven't been through this experience, just to do a little bit of research themselves to kind of get an idea. But, um, and, uh, in terms of like your family and other like people, like was your family generally pretty supportive this, uh, with this whole, whole journey? <laughs> you asked me where I didn't want to go. I oh, you don't have to. You definitely don't. No, and, and it's fine. I, I, yeah, I will answer generally. So when I came out as trans, um, I came out. To, so my parents had been split for a long time, long before I came out. Um, and so that was, you know, there was some tension at home growing up and, and whatever. But your split doesn't necessarily come by surprise. Um, I told my mom first. Um, she was not surprised. Um, not surprised at all, and had said she kind of had a hunch for a while and had been waiting for me to tell her. Um, it was, you know, emotional. It was emotional for me sort of putting it out there, and it was emotional for her to hear. Um, and I would say, um, so it's tricky, and we don't actually have any, con- I don't have contact with my family right now. Um, this is, you know, years later, but at the time, you know, my mom was very supportive and helped me do what I need to do to get closer to surgeries and um, helped me financially with some of that um, which was great um, my dad um, at the time that I came out and ever since then has lived in various other countries so we've not had a, um, a ton of relationship it took him far longer to kind of get on board but we also didn't really have a relationship at the time that I came out. So, you know, my mom had told him and, um, you know, he's down in the Caribbean somewhere and he hasn't seen me in two years. Like, how do you contextualize that? How right. do you, what do you, what do you mean? You know? And so I think his response at the time was pretty flippant and wasn't really what I needed to hear. And then there was like an email a few months later that just said like, I accept you, but I don't understand this at all. Um, and kind of the turning point, um, was a few years later, a friend um, and I, a friend who also happens to be a transmasculine person, um, we went and visited my dad where in the country he was living, so beach vacation, and my dad was there, um, whatever, and I think it took him spending time with me as I am now to have that light switch moment, because that was the point at which he started using the right name pronouns. I think it was partially motivated by the fact that he just looked totally insane if he didn't, because <laughs> the rest of the world was reading me as male, and, like, I saw him stutter one time where he was introduced to somebody as his daughter, and then realized, well, this is going to be weird. So he just switched, and then afterwards he said, I didn't know what to do there. Did I do the right thing? And I just went, yes, this is fine. We, we don't owe that random business associate of yours a big explanation, even though he thought you only had one son and now you have two. Yeah. <laughs> um, whatever. And so we just kind of rolled with it. Um, and so, yeah, like largely supportive of my transition. I've never really had um, much extended family, but the extended family I did rolled with it. Um, my brother... Uh, he's actually on the autism spectrum. Everybody was very worried about telling him. Um, and he was like the easiest because he, so, you know, with the way that he experiences, uh, you know, his sort of neurodivergence and that kind of thing, like he takes everything very literally. So it was sort of presented to him that, you know, um, 
you know, your sister's really always felt more like a brother, and so he's going to go by the name Wes, and you have a brother now, and he was like, okay. And then we get a real kick out of, like, who, you know, let's see who has furrier legs, and, <laughs> you know, like, who has more chest hair, and whatever, which, um, you know, was interesting. So, in that way, um, you know, it was it was pretty good. There was not really anybody in my family that had that awful, um, averse reaction. I, I got that from some other people in the world. Yeah. Um, but not really from family. Well, and my partner was, you know, like, I don't know if you want me to go into that too, but yeah. It sounds like she was very, well, from you, what you alluded, it sounds like she was supportive and, um, like there, there along the way. Yeah. It was just, you know, it, I think a lot of people have to worry about like what will this mean for my partner? What um, what am I putting my partner through? Um, especially people who often transition later in life and have been married for many years and have kids. Like there's all of this. You know, I know somebody recently just started transitioning in their sixties because it was like oh, I'm going to wait until kids leave home and I'm going to do this and that. Um, you know, with my partner, it was just always like. I remember her saying to me once, like, I've never thought of you as having a gender. You just are, like, a, a person that I fell in love with, and I kind of don't care how you're wrapped up, mm-hmm. as long as you're alive and happy. Um, That's wonderful. And, you know, and it did have some repercussions for her, it, it, um, you know, because initially, when she sort of announced to the world that we were a thing, um, people went, oh, so that means you're a lesbian. Um, she's had small town upbringing and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, people made some very large conclusions about what that meant to her. But the funny thing was she was just like, think whatever you want. I just, and it's funny, like she's somebody who grew up in this tiny town. Her first job was like tobacco picking. And I'm like, uh-huh. how are you just, like, there's no reason that you should be progressive. her town is entirely white and you know Mennonites and Amish folks with carts and Mm. um, I remember her saying that there was one black person in her high school nobody Mm. of any other race other than white and one black person Wow! so it was sort of like I don't know how you got to this place of just like it is what it is but she did and, and that was great and so I was really lucky in the sense that I don't think there were ever times where I really had to panic and be like, oh my God, is she okay with this? Um, and I, that made it a lot easier to kind of figure it out because she was just like, do whatever and, and we'll figure it out when we get there. Yeah. Well, Wes, I can't, uh, I can't thank you probably enough for, for being so open with me today and, um, and being so articulate also as well in your description of, of your life and what your journey has been like. And it's cool to see you also channeling that into the work that you do every day now. too. Yeah. I think, I, I don't know. I just, I had a lot of help and I had a lot of support and not everybody gets that. And so I, I just kind of think it's our job when and can't, when, when and where we feel empowered to do it to kind of help the next one up. And, um, I think that's sort of what's drawn me into this work because I, you know, I got a lot of what other people didn't have. And, um, if I can use some of that in a, in a good way, um, you know, why the heck not? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, yeah, it's, it, and it's cool seeing, I think the biggest motivator to doing the work working in trans health is seeing 
these young people, young people, like sometimes as young as seven, eight, nine, that have such a clear idea of who they are that I'm like, I didn't even have that until I was in my 20s. So like, let's run with it. If you are seven and you know exactly who you are in the world, then like full steam ahead. Like, yeah. you know, let's surround you with resources and support and see what happens. Yeah. Um, you know, so yeah. Damn. So, uh, so thank you so much. And um, okay. yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely. My pleasure. I, um, you'll have to tell me where I can listen to it after and yeah. be horrified with how I sound. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get it all edited. <laughs> we'll see how the editing goes. And then uh, once it's all all cleaned up, I'll, uh, I'll send it your way. Perfect. Sounds good. Okay. Thanks again, Wes. My pleasure. Have a good night. Bye.